if you uh, have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1 tonight, uh, is where we'll start. Again, just by uh, way of introducing a series, when we talk about cults and what they believe, we're going to have to try to address more than one thing. It's going to cause us to, to move around a little bit inside of our uh, Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible with you tonight, there should be one in the seat uh, bottom in front of you. Also, just want to uh, remind you, there are cards on your seat. We want you to take those and invite someone to come back and be a part of Crave with us uh, either Sunday or next Wednesday. So uh, tonight, uh, we're going to focus on Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, examine what they believe versus what Christians believe. So if you're there in Hebrews chapter 1... Uh, If you stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word, we're going to take a look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This is the reading of God's word, and we praise him and thank him that we get to do this week in and week out. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come to you tonight, and um, we are aware that um, without your help, we can't get any of this right. Without your help, without your word, without you revealing yourself to us through your word, none of us have any hope of knowing you. So as we turn and evaluate others, uh, we want to be careful and make sure that we're also evaluating ourselves and make sure that we genuinely know you. So if there's a person in here tonight who does not know you, who does not have a genuine relationship with you, I pray that they would place their faith and trust in you uh, for the forgiveness of their sins and begin to have an intimate relationship whereby they can know you better. And Father, we think tonight, uh, we know that we sit in here We'll listen to the word, but we know that there are other places around the city where gospel preaching is going to be taking place. And so we just want to pray for our friends. We want to pray uh, that you would bless them and you would encourage them. And and we want to pray for them specifically. We want to pray for them by name. Think of our our friends over at uh, Graceway Baptist Church, uh, Bob Stevenson, Kyle Gangle, Tyler Shores, Von Waller, Zach Gill, their whole staff, Father. We, We want to Ask that you would allow them to increase. Think of our friends at Ridgecrest uh, here in town. We think of Jeremy Muniz, Wayne Barron, Rich Langston, uh, Randy Copeland, Kevin Cook, Nick Goodwin, Luke Harding, and the rest of their staff, Father. We just ask that you would bless them in an unreal and an unmeasurable way that they would uh, know you uh, better and that they would be able to proclaim uh, the gospel in our city uh, clearly, and they would see much fruit as a result of it. And Father, we have so many things to celebrate and, and so many things to be in awe of. And 
things that we take for granted, like even the Bible that we hold in our hands, thinking about how you've blessed us and blessed our country specifically. And, and we think even as I was reading today, as uh, we celebrate 100 years uh, this year of the Chinese people having their own Bible, uh, Father, we've had it for so much longer and we don't interact with it enough. So we pray that you would be with our, our brothers and sisters in China, that you would raise up more and more believers there, that they, uh, even in the midst of intense persecution and suffering, might know you. So be with us now. Help us as we engage with people. Help us to be charitable and kind. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, when we think about Jehovah's Witnesses, we, we need, like we did last week, to set the history of Jehovah's Witnesses out in front of us. And um, Jehovah's Witnesses was started by a man named Charles Hayes Russell in 1870. And realistically, Jehovah's Witnesses started as a group called, this was their name, the Bible Students. And they were formed around uh, some key doctrinal rejections, namely the rejection of the Trinity and hell, as well as the belief that immortality could be attained. So started with the rejection of the Trinity and uh, an eternal conscious hell. And so in 1879, Russell formed and started what would now be known as the Watchtower Magazine or Watchtower Publications. If you ever um, encounter anything under that title, you're you're holding in your hand something that the Jehovah's Witnesses have published. And Russell, Charles Hayes Russell, argued that in 1914, the world as, well, I would say as we know it, but we weren't there, so as they knew it, would end and God's kingdom would be set up. Well, Russell died in 1916, and Judge Joseph Franklin Rutherford came to power in the Jehovah's Witnesses, he was the next president of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he changed the prediction of the end of the world to 1925. Nathan Knorr would come to power in 1942 following Rutherford's death, and no uh, end times prophecy completed. Knorr's greatest contribution to Jehovah's Witnesses would be uh, he was the one who uh, began to train them specifically in door-to-door efforts. So Nor comes on the scene in 1942 and begins training Jehovah's Witnesses to be even more aggressive in the outreach, the proclamation of the Jehovah's Witnesses message. And uh, Nor, while he's not known for this, did take a stab at when he thought uh, the world would end and moved the date from 19. 25 to 1975. Well, in 1977, Frederick Franz became the next president. And Franz is considered to be the strongest theologian of the group and never actually um, made a prediction about when the world would end and the kingdom of God would be established for Jehovah's Witnesses. Milton Henschel follows Franz in 1992 and made a major change to how the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses look to the end times. Um, he changed the understanding. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there's a wicked generation that will be basically wiped out, and 
what um, Henschel does is say, look, that generation could be any generation at any time. Because originally what Jehovah's Witnesses had done is they changed uh, the prediction to be that the, it wasn't that the world would end in 1914. There was an error there. It was the people who were born in the generation of 1914. And Henschel in 92 recognizes we've got a major, major problem on our hands. All those people are about to die. So we've got to do something with the fact that this prophecy hasn't come true. So he changes the way that the Jehovah's Witnesses understood. So they it can end at any time. So let's just talk real briefly about leadership structure, and then we'll um, move into actual doctrinal issues. Inside of the Jehovah's Witnesses is mainly just a president, and that's how they started. And in 1976, they invited a governing body to come and be a part of their organization. And the current president of Jehovah's Witnesses is a man by the name of Don Alden Adams. And in the year 2000, Adams leads the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses to really uh, change again their structure. And so the governing body oversees the three main branches, if you will, of uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses structure. There are three groups that you need to know about um, in case you engage with someone because they'll tell you they're probably a part of one of these three. There's Kingdom Support Services, which deals with individual congregations. Then there's the Religious Order of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Those are what are called full-time ministers, even though they're, they will work other jobs. Um, unless you're very high up in Jehovah's Witnesses, you don't serve in a full-time capacity like someone like me or any of the other staff pastors on our church. And then the final group that kind of helps to oversee the Jehovah's Witnesses as an organization is the Christian Congregation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they are the theological arm, and they handle all the religious matters um, of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So that kind of puts the Jehovah's Witnesses in front of us. Now, let's just talk about a few things before we dive into um, specific doctrinal distinctives. Um, it is worth noting, because a lot of people will say, don't the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that heaven is reserved for 144,000 people? No, they don't believe that specifically. They do believe that there are 144,000 people who will have the opportunity to become godlike in at the end of the world as we know it. The only problem with that is that that group has already filled up. It was full at 1935. So none of us have that option in front of us if we were to become Jehovah's Witnesses. But we do have the opportunity to um, experience a heavenly paradise, and we'll talk a little bit about that throughout. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses are primarily known for things like um, not celebrating holidays, not celebrating uh, birthdays, uh, not taking blood transfusions. Uh, those are primarily what gets the most press time because to the secular world at large, that is what is most interesting. I say that to say this. We're going to spend a lot of time tonight uh, over the next few minutes talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, and none of what we're going to talk about has anything to do with why they don't celebrate birthdays or why they don't uh, take blood transfusions or why they don't celebrate Christmas and major holidays. Because 
be honest with you, like none of that really honestly matters. I mean, it does because it's connected. But we don't want to get into debates with people about why their practice, why they lead out into practices. We don't want to get into discussions and and try to have conversations with people and focus on the fact, like, why don't you celebrate Christmas? There are lots of people who will spend eternity separated from God forever that celebrate Christmas. That's not the issue. And when we get hung up in the weeds of minor issues, we end up spending all of our capital in our conversation talking about things that at the end of the day, the your greatest help to a Jehovah's Witness is not to get them to start celebrating the 4th of July. Or to take a blood transfusion. What we need to do is we need to engage with people about what they believe, why they believe it, and what is the biblical response to it. So with that in mind, we're going to turn our attention to three, again, just touching some major doctrinal distinctives. What's different? Where and how do we argue? So we're going to start tonight with the issue of authority. And we've gone to Hebrews chapter 1. We've read that whole paragraph. But I want us to mainly focus on verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. When we talk about authority, we're not looking at who's in charge of the Jehovah's Witnesses and versus who's in charge of the Baptists. It's not a contest between Ronnie Floyd, the president of the executive committee, and Don Adams for the religious welterweight title of the century. That's not what we're after when we talk about authority. And a lot of times we will focus on who's in charge and who's leading an organization. But at the end of the day, there's a higher authority that governs over Christians specifically and Jehovah's Witnesses as well. And this issue of authority is going to impact their understanding of what it means to follow God and our understanding of what it means to follow God. Where Jehovah's Witnesses look to Watchtower Magazine and the New World Translation, Christians look to the Scripture as their ultimate authority. And Jehovah's Witnesses are going to argue, I want you to listen very carefully, and I'm not taking this out of context, I am reading to you now directly from the Watchtower magazine. Jehovah's Witnesses should avoid independent thinking. They should avoid independent Bible study and trust the counsel that is provided by God's visible organization, the Watchtower Magazine. And that comes from the January 15th, 1983 and January 15th, 1911 issues of Watchtower. So I'm not telling you something that I'm pulling out of context. This is straight from the source. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the Bible that you hold in your hands, regardless of if it's a King James Version of the Bible, New King James, New American Standard, ESV, uh, CSV, whatever Bible you're holding in your hands, the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to argue the one supreme way of understanding God is through the New World Translation and the Watchtower magazine. 
Christians, however, believe that this scripture, this Bible, the Bible that you hold in your hands and that I hold in mine, those original 66 autographs in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic are the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And you say, what did you just say? I'm saying the Bible that we hold in our hands is perfect and contains no error. And thus doesn't need to be corrected by a magazine or a, a New World Translation. Hebrews tells us that God has spoken to us. And he has spoken to us through his son. And if we were to read John 1, if we were to flip over to John 1, which we're going to do in a minute. But if we were going to flip over to John 1, we would learn that in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And so what Christians need to rally behind and and you say, David, why are you getting passionate here? We're just talking about the Bible because every generation faces this great battle. Are we going to submit to the scriptures? Are our pastors going to submit to the scriptures? Are our pastors going to preach to us the scriptures? Are our pastors going to be committed to the scripture above all else? When I have a problem, are they going to come to me with the word or their opinion? And what word is it going to be? Is it going to be God's word or man's word? The scriptures provide for us all we need for life and godliness. Provided that we actually read and study them. Flip over just a few pages to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. I can't talk about this issue and not reference this passage of scripture. I want to put it in front of you and. If uh, if you were to take a a passage tonight, and I think all the passages we'll look at, but this would be a great one for you to chew and meditate on. Look at verse number 19. We'll read to the end of the chapter. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark clay until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit Peter tells us look you want confidence you want authority you want to know who should be calling the shots in your life you want to know where you should look to for the answers of what it means to follow Christ you have it in the word of God because it came from God moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is inspiring the authors through their personalities, their temperaments, and their gifts to give us his word. Not an edited version of it. Not one that was entrusted and then some years later would be edited by men. And you, you say, dude, okay, yeah, that's bad. They shouldn't do that. Right, but again, like, if we go through this series... And merely only look at other people. Aren't we not kind of like the Pharisees that are like, this is what's wrong with you. And John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he's like, you people are bad too. It's not just them. It's all. Right? All. He calls them whitewashed tombs. And we got to be careful because it's, it becomes easy when we start to 
look at other people, and when they believe stuff that's inconsistent or outright opposite or heretical with the Bible, to begin to say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And then what leads to that is we're right, we're right, we're right, and they're all wrong, and look how wonderful we are. Submit to you, unless you've played a vital part in the composition of the scriptures, you're not right. God is. And if you think that you've played a major part in the composition of scriptures, we need to talk anyway as a church. You've got some other things that we need to address. So I just ask you this question What's the ultimate authority in your life? Not in Jehovah's Witnesses. Look away from them for a moment and say, What's the ultimate authority in your life? And are you actually spending time understanding what God's expectations are for his disciples? Like, I'll submit to God's authority. God's word is my authority. It's my final authority. Until it says something that I don't like. Until it tells me that something about me must change. That God's expectations are different. Then it's not really authoritative. If we're going to engage with people who don't believe what we believe, who believe things that are directly contrary to Scripture, and we're not going to submit to ourselves, why don't we line up on the other side of the ball and play for the other team? But you didn't expect to hear. So the one thing some of you will walk away is, David said, we might as well become Jehovah's Witnesses. That's not what I'm arguing for. What I'm arguing against is this idea that we're going to be Christians who claim God's word as authoritative, but live like it's not. It's this inconsistent living that pervades Christianity. This nominal, Jesus is my homeboy, like we're friends, he gets me out of hell, but he doesn't tell me how to live my life because we're tight and we're friends. That's not Jesus. That's your knucklehead friend. Christ must be Lord of all, or he's not Lord of any of it. Which is a good way for us to transition to point number two, the issue of Christ. Flip over in your Bibles to John chapter 1. This is going to be one of the main texts that you would have to interact with a Jehovah's Witness over. John chapter 1, we'll read the first five. And just in case you're wondering, I know some of you are still flipping over there, so you can listen as you turn. Yes, the passage that we read as our call to worship sounds similar to this passage. And that's intentional. We try and link our call to worship to what we're going to be covering inside of our sermon text. Because we want the word to begin to prepare you even as you're singing. So when somebody gets up at the beginning of service, you're not just tuning them out and being like, okay, somebody's got to read the scripture so it can get started. Like it's some sort of starter's pistol that until it's over, then we know it's time to go. No, it's linked together so that the word is constantly working even as we're singing. Hopefully we're thinking about, well, that's interesting, and it's tying it all together. So John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. 
in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We've got to argue with what people believe about Christ, because ultimately what you believe about Christ and what you believe about the scriptures will dictate everything that comes behind it. In fact, a lot of times we can get sidetracked by minor arguments over minor things with people who don't agree with us on major things. And anytime you're engaging with someone who does not, in in any of these cults that we're going to talk about, we we need to get to what do you believe about the Bible and what do you believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because no other question that you will ever answer in your entire life is more significant than answering those two questions. Jehovah's Witnesses argue that Jesus Christ is a mighty God, but deny that he is God Almighty like Jehovah. And they argue that Jesus becomes a perfect being and that he died as a mere human. Further, Jehovah's Witnesses must believe in Christ to get them back to a state of neutrality, but what determines your salvation is how good you are at being a Jehovah's Witness. So understand what's going on. Jehovah's Witnesses are arguing Jesus is not actually God. In fact, they go so far as to say that he's a physical manifestation of Michael, the archangel. And they believe that he died as a mere human. You must put your faith and trust in him at some level. But all that does is wipe away your original sin. What we're innately born with. The thing you don't have to teach kids how to sin. That's wiped away, you become neutral, and your ability to spend eternity in paradise is based on how good you are as a Jehovah's Witness. Christians, however, believe that there was never a time that Jesus was not God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing was made that was made. John argues Jesus is the divine Logos, the divine word. He was there in the beginning, he's there in the middle, and he's there in the end. There's never a time that Jesus was not God. In the New World Translation, if you were going to go to John chapter 1, verse 1, and just do a word comparison... It would read like this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. So I wanted to make sure I got this right. You know, you read books, you're studying, you're making my case, right? Got everything just spread out all over the desk. It's just crazy town in there. And I'm like, I want to be charitable. I don't want to misrepresent, so I'm going to go to... JehovahsWitnesses.org. You go to the source. Pull up New World Translation. Want to make sure we get this right. Yep, it's there. Oh, hey, look, they've got cross-references. Well, if you know me, I'm a researcher. So we've got footnotes and cross-references. This is awesome. You may not think that. So I'm like, okay, let's see what we cross-reference with. Philippians 2, 5 and 6 interesting text to go to and then i read their text and i'm like of course this is where they go flip over to philippians chapter two if nothing else from getting our tour of the bible you might get a paper cut tonight um 
But I'm trying to show you that there's not just one clear-cut way to argue and engage with people. And we have a na- we have a nasty connotation of argument. Like, argument is like an umpire and a baseball coach like screaming at each other face to face. That's not an argument. Arguments take place. I mean, that is an argument. That's a very intense argument. Been a part of those. But what I am saying is, when I say I'm making an argument, I'm putting together a case. Almost like I would want to argue in front of an impartial jury. Verses 5 and 6 of your Bibles will probably read something like this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Inside of the New World Translation, it reads something like this. It's going to be a little bit of a paraphrase, but you can go and look it up tonight. Let this mental attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then it will talk about being in the form of God. And then it will make this odd reference, namely as a result of a seizure, and goes on to talk about who Christ is. Jehovah's Witnesses argue that the reason why According to their translation, I'm not saying you'll get into a conversation with a theologian who will argue this, but I'm saying if you really value the New World Translation, take them to Philippians 2, 5, and 6 and ask them, you're arguing, according to this passage, Jesus believes he's God because of a seizure. If they're honest with what lays in front of them in the text, they will have to agree. Because as the text reads, Jesus has a seizure, and that is, as a result of that, he believes that he is God. Christ is God. Not because of a seizure, and not because he's a lunatic, and not because he's a liar. It's because he's legitimately God. Christ is fully and truly God. For if he is not God, if he is not God, understand this tonight, his payment on the cross, his death is meaningless. The author of Hebrews tells us that the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats is never sufficient. It only appeased the wrath of God. There had to be a perfect sacrifice that would come. If Christ is not that sufficient sacrifice, then let's just go home and we won't come back. He either is sufficient or he's not sufficient. There's no in-between and there's no bringing us to a state of uh, neutrality. So I'd ask you this tonight, what are you trusting in to actually save you? What is it your faith in Christ alone or is it some sort of work that you do, maybe being a good church member, showing up here, not getting into fights with people, like being a nice moral person. If you put your faith and trust in anything other than the person and work of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you will spend eternity separated from God in a world of hell because you can't save yourself. Which leads us to our final doctrinal and that's the one on hell. 
I'm going to summarize the passage for you, but those of you taking notes, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, Jesus does not tell a parable of the rich man who is in hell and Lazarus. He tells a, a legitimate story to teach a point. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the existence of a literal hell, arguing that humanity just ceases to live and they go to an eternal grave or are annihilated. The idea of eternal conscious torment was a major point of disagreement by uh, the founding president of Jehovah's Witnesses and would continue through the successive presidents. Oddly enough, let this sink in for you. I've saved this nugget till the end. The first four presidents of Jehovah's Witnesses were raised as conservative Presbyterians, conservative Baptists, and conservative members of the Reformed Church, all of which argue for a literal and real hell, all of which those original four founding presidents rejected as a key sticking point of what it meant to be a Jehovah's Witness. So lest we get to the end of this and think that we're above ever falling into doctrinal error or confusion, let us look to the presidents of this particular cult and be reminded that some of them started out in organizations very similar to ours, teaching, being taught very similar things, and rejected those. Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 16 that there are a few realities. One, that there is an eternal conscious place of torment. And two, that there is a great gulf fixed between Christ in heaven and those who are in hell. This is what the rich man says. He says, send someone to just dip their finger in water and let it drop on my tongue. And we know that he's told it's impossible because there's a great chasm fixed between us. And finally, we also know that in that teaching, Jesus tells us that the rich man implores that someone go tell his family members about what is coming for them. And the response is they have Moses and the prophets. And if they won't listen to them, they'll never go to heaven. reminds us for all of the people who would say, if God would just give me a sign, then I would believe. Beloved, he has given you a sign. His word is the work of his son. I just ask you tonight, where are you going to spend eternity? We don't talk about this a lot with college students, probably to my shame and oversight in the sense that we're all young and we think that we're going to live forever. That's just simply not the case. Just ask some of the other older adult leaders if they're going to live forever. And they will tell you no, because it already hurts so bad to be as old as they are. What are you boasting in as your confidence for where you will spend eternity? And like last week, I'll just ask this question again. Here's an organization that manages every year to, at a minimum, start 48 to 72 new kingdom halls in the United States. Meanwhile, Christianity is spiraling. We've got corporate mega churches. We've got churches closing their doors. We've got churches that are light on sin and heavy on fun, light on Christ and heavy on have a good time. 
meanwhile, people who don't have the truth and are far more committed to it than we are to the actual getting to truth manage to make their way out day in and day out and then spend time knocking on people's doors, having them slammed in their face, and we go on and on and on and on. But your friend that you've sat to for the last four weeks in chem class, you can't go and cross the aisle and talk to them about Christ. There is a general, and I'm not saying in our college ministry, because I, I just, spe- just speaking honestly, have seen a shift in our college ministry this year already. But the fact of the matter is we've had 45 first-time visitors for the first time first four weeks of our semester. So we, we are getting to the point where we're buying in. But I'm telling you that as someone who studies church history and looks at the wider culture at a, as a whole and studies what's going on as a wider organization of what it means to be a Christian, we are apathetic. And we don't care. And you say, prove it. If we really cared, really were intentional about seeing people come to know Christ, just as Southern Baptists, let's start with us at home, our baptism numbers would not be as far down as they are, our church membership involvement would not be as down as it is, and furthermore, we wouldn't be closing as many churches and starting every new year with less churches than we did the year before. There's got to be a general intensity that comes out of this series, otherwise the series is a waste of time. And that intensity must be there are people who believe error and are willing to spend eternity separated from God on the basis of that error. And our job is as 1 Corinthians 13 Christians to love them enough to tell them the truth in a way that promotes the love of Christ. So I want to just challenge us again this week to be people who are radically committed to intensely taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the four corners of our block, to the four corners of the globe.